Well, really nice to be with you tonight, and uh, thank you for the kind invitation. I think I have spoken once before on a Sunday at the church. Um, I can't just quite remember when that was, but uh, some time ago. So I was asked if I would provide an overview of the book of Haggai, so that's what the plan is uh, this evening, so just a bit of an overview, a little bit about the background, a little bit about the prophet, and uh, then a wander through the two chapters of the, this, this little prophecy of Haggai. So we'll read uh, some of it a little bit later on, uh, but let me just uh, tell you a little bit about the background of this little prophecy and when it fits in, or where it fits in, uh, as far as uh, <coughs> biblical history is concerned. So uh, I think that... Uh, Apparently the last prophet that you looked at was the prophet Ezekiel, I think. Is that right? Um, So, well, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king, obviously. um, And you can read about him in all kinds of places in the Old Testament. But in 605, he uh, grew weary of uh, the people of uh, Jerusalem and their... Revolts, and in 605 he invaded Jerusalem, took some of the folks away prisoners, but by and large he, uh, I, I guess, uh, endeavored to bring the city under control. What he began in 605, uh, he finished in 586 BC, so 586 years before Jesus came. He again uh, entered Jerusalem. And on that particular occasion, he uh, just decimated the city. He raised the temple to the ground um, and he took away uh, the majority of the inhabitants of the city as prisoners, dragged them across the desert uh, and settled them really in prisoner of war camps uh, along the Kibar River in in Babylon. And uh, of course, uh, that was all predicted by the prophets and uh, their misery began to set in, and uh, they lived out their lives there. Uh, for the prophet Jeremiah said, it would be 70 years of exile that they would experience. So in 559 uh, BC, so that's 586, that the city was decimated. And then in 559 BC, there was a, a a ruler, a king is maybe too grand of a term to, to use to describe him uh, by the name of Cyrus. And he ruled over a tiny little uh, region called Anshan. Uh, it was part of uh, Elam uh, and, and it was beside the Persian Gulf. And uh, he began to emerge onto the world stage. The first thing that he did this... Uh, king of this tiny little province is uh, he joined forces with um, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, actually the fourth king from Nebuchadnezzar's um, who features largely in the book of Daniel. And uh, anyway, this successor was called Nabonidus and Cyrus and he um, joined forces and they overthrew um, 
a city called Ekbatana, which was the capital of um, the media of the Median Persian Empire. So Cyrus then throws off his overlord, along with the, a bit of help from a Babylonian king called Nabonidus. And as soon as he conquered uh, the capital of the Median Persian Empire, he then sort of offloaded Nabonidus and excluded him from power within uh, the, the rule of, of that particular region. So, so now he's king over a vast region, the, the, the Median Persian Empire, this man called Cyrus. Um, on the 12th of October 539, uh, when Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar, and you can read about him in, in Daniel chapter 5, and they kind of reigned as co-regents for a while towards the end of Nabonidus' life. Nabonidus was a fairly weak-willed king, and uh, he wasn't really a great successor or a great ruler. And his son and he sort of were co-regents of Babylon for a period. And uh, in, in 539, after the death of Belshazzar, then Cyrus entered Babylon and took control not only of the Median Persian Empire, but now of the entire Babylonian Empire. Um, Cyrus was an interesting person. Uh, he, one of the things that, that really marks him out it was the fact that he was sympathetic to foreign gods. So Nabonidus was hostile towards foreign gods. And uh, the gods of the Hebrew, uh, the god of the Hebrews, and so on. But Cyrus was different. He he was sympathetic. He was open uh, and respected the gods of foreign nations, and that probably helped him as he endeavoured to take over Babylon. So Cyrus is now uh, in charge of the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, and he unites the two of them, and he's. He's now king over a vast uh, region. And one of the things that he did the year after he became the ruler of, of Babylon was he issued an edict uh, which allowed, or not only allowed, but actually commissioned uh, the Jews to return to their native land and to rebuild the temple. And you can read about that edict in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, and then again it's reiterated in, in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. So almost 70 years after they were taken into exile, depends when you depends when, when that exile started. Did it start in 605? Did it start in 586? It's difficult to say when that exile period started. But almost 70 years, as Jeremiah had said, after the people of Israel had been sent into exile, they returned to Jerusalem under the leader of Sheshbazzar and also a few other characters, leaders that were in that group, Zerubbabel and another man called Joshua, sometimes pronounced Joshua. And under their leadership, about 50,000 Jews left um, Susa and returned then to um, returned to Jerusalem. Now I, there is a bit of discussion about whether Zerubbabel and Sheshbazzar were actually the same 
person. Zerubbabel was his Hebrew name. Sheshbazar was his Persian name. Some people think that they were two different people. Some people think that they are the same. Uh, I think it doesn't really matter for our purposes tonight. Suffice to say that around 50,000 people then returned uh, to Jerusalem from Persia. Uh, interestingly, Cyrus not only told the Jews to go back to their native lands, but he also sent with them uh, some of the golden vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple or taken from the temple to Babylon when he overrode uh, Jerusalem. And, and so Cyrus is a really interesting king. He sends them back to Jerusalem and he asks uh, them to take with them the golden vessels that had been stolen from the temple uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. One of the other things that... Uh, Cyrus did was he made Sheshbazzar governor over Judah and tasked him with not only leading these people back to Jerusalem but also relaying the foundations of the temple. He wanted the Jews to uh, rebuild their temple and uh, he wanted them to pray for him. So they returned and about 50,000 of them and they began to work on relaying the foundations of the temple, a task which they seem to complete just two years later. So they returned in 538 BC, uh, and, and then two years later, they had completed the laying, the relaying of the foundations of the temple. Now, Ezra uh, 3, verses 8 to 11, tells us about some of the great celebrations. That took place at the completion of the laying of the temple's foundations. And, and one of the other things that they did was they reinstated the altar in the temple. The foundations of the altar and reinstated the altar. And although the temple was still largely in ruins after Nebuchadnezzar's onslaught of the city. Although the city was largely in ruins. They began to sacrifice again and began to offer sacrifices uh, to God again. And it seems that uh, things had got off to a great start. They'd relayed the foundations of the city um, or the, of the temple. They had started to offer sacrifices to God again. But that initial flurry of two years of enthusiasm and, and work seemed to come to a grinding halt. Their enthusiasm began to wax and wane, as we would sometimes say, um, and, and 18 years later, 18 years later, the temple still hadn't been uh, completed. 520 BC, 538 they returned, um, and 520 when uh, Haggai steps onto the scene, the temple still hasn't been completed, and it's still largely a ruin. Now, it's difficult to know why the um, why that initial flurry of work and enthusiasm began to wax and wane. Um, I think that they probably faced difficulties. I think that they faced um, distractions. I think that there were all kinds of challenges that they faced in the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, I think all of those things were, were factors. One of So let me just reiterate or give you a bit of an insight into some of the challenges that they faced in rebuilding the temple when they returned after that period of exile. Um, 
I think one of them was just poverty. Like the people that returned with Sheshbaz or, or Zerubbabel would have been the poorer Jews because the richer Jews who had settled into life in Babylon and were now enjoying top jobs, um, like Nehemiah, who was the king's cupbearer, it, it's unlikely that they would have wanted to give up their good life in Babylon and return to a decimated, devastated site and city like Jerusalem. And so those who did return were probably the poorer of the Jews who hadn't much to give up. And they returned and so they didn't have a lot of resources to pour into the rebuilding of the temple. They were busy, it would seem, rebuilding uh, homes for themselves to live in. And another thing that happened was um, Cyrus actually uh, died uh, in 529 BC. So Haggai steps onto the scene in 520 and they returned in 538. So, but in the middle of that period, Cyrus had died and a bit of a struggle about who would be his successor and eventually a man called Cambyses was his successor. And one of the things that Cambyses was focused on it, it was, was conquering Egypt. So if you know your geography, you'll know that Israel was on the passageway uh, down for them as they sweeped up over the de desert and, and then down towards Egypt. It was like a passageway for them. So Israel would have been a place where they set up camp. It would have been a place where they were. And, and so the Israelites who had returned, the people of Judah who had returned, would have been forced to have provided food and clothing for soldiers. And, and, it, and it would have been a military site for a number of years. And so uh, they would have been distracted from what they had come back to do because of all these troops who were now living in, in, amongst them. But the biggest thing, the biggest obstacle that they faced in rebuilding the temple, and this story is told in Ezra chapter 4, was the opposition that they experienced from the Samaritans. The Samaritans at first, Ezra 4, were helpful and said, you know, we worship God too. Uh, we would help you rebuild the temple. But Zerubbabel and, and Joshua said, no, no, we don't want your help. This is something that the king of Persia has asked us to do. Um, Cyrus has asked us to do. We'll do it ourselves. And they didn't want outside interference. And, and, it, and it wasn't that they were xenophobic. It was rather that it was a matter of, of, of somehow remaining committed to the Lord. And it was a religious issue. And, and they felt that they wanted to rebuild the temple because they had been tasked with it. And of course, then the Samaritans became antagonized and they began to oppose the rebuilding project, made life as difficult as they could for the Jews. On one occasion, they wrote to one of Cyrus's successors called Artaxerxes and they actually got him to stop the work of rebuilding the temple. So life was made extremely difficult for the Jews when they returned back to Jerusalem. And rebuilding the temple wasn't just a simple exercise. But here we are 18 years later and Haggai and also Zechariah step onto the scene. And they begin to prophesy to try and spur the Israelites on to rebuild the temple. Now Haggai's ministry lasted only for four months. Not a long time, eh? Just four months. Chapter 1, uh, we see that his ministry began on the first day of the sixth month. And then at the end of chapter 2, we see 
that it ended, his final prophecy was made on the 24th day of the ninth month. So not a long time, just a period of about four months. Don't know much about Haggai, who he was. His name, uh, loosely translated, means Feast of Jehovah or Feast of Yahweh. Um, and so he was probably born on one of the great Jewish festivals and his parents named him uh, Feast or, or Festival. That's loosely what his name means. He must have been one of the young men who returned uh, from Babylon with Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel in 538. And uh, I don't know if he had ever seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory. There are those who argue that he had seen it at some point in his life. Um, and uh, he was comparing the new temple with the old temple. But it's difficult to know whether he had ever lived in Jerusalem whether, uh, or, or what the exact scenario was. But here he is, 18 years after they've returned, and he steps up and begins to prophesy in his attempt to spur the Israelites on to rebuild the temple, which was largely a ruin. And God's word came uh, to God's people through uh, this uh, prophet Haggai. Well, in looking at the prophecy, I, 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 I'm not going to go through every nuance of the text uh, that, that makes up his little book. But I, I think it would be helpful just to run through it. And that's what I want to do for a few minutes now. So Haggai, I'm going to follow just the outline that's given in the ESV study Bible. I think it's fairly helpful. I don't think it's perfect, actually. Uh, I would have changed one or two things. But I, I think it's helpful. I'm going to just really follow that outline of the little prophecy. So there's basically three main sections. And uh, we're going to look at the first section, which is... A call to rebuild the temple. That's what we read about in chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. There's a call to rebuild the temple. So in the second year of King Darius. So he's, he's been in, in power for one whole year King Darius. One of uh, Cyrus's successors. And uh, on the first day of the sixth month. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. To Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while the house of the Lord remains in ruins. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much. But have harvested little. You eat. But you're nev you never have enough. You drink. But, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes. But you're not warm. You earn wages. Only to put them in a purse. With holes in it. This is what the Almighty, the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways and go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see it turned out to be little. 
What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the field and the mountains on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. So that's the first 11 verses. And in it, really, the prophet Haggai is just appealing to them to rebuild uh, the temple. And, and the excuse that the Israelites are using is that the time had not come to rebuild the Lord's house. It, it wasn't just the right time. That was the excuse that they were hiding behind. So, difficult to know why they felt it wasn't the right time. Maybe they thought Jeremiah's prediction was that the exile would last 70 years. And so, if that began in 586, then the time of exile wouldn't be up until 516. And maybe then, after that period, we would look at rebuilding the temple. Maybe that was the, their reasoning. Um, Maybe it, it, it was a reference to the hostility of the Samaritans. Maybe what they were saying was, well, you know, it's really difficult at the minute. They're facing all kinds of hostility. And uh, maybe we would be better waiting for a, a period, waiting for a while, till things just calm down a little bit. We don't want to be too in, in your face as in, in regard to these Samaritans. So, so we'll, we'll wait a little bit longer. And... Uh, course the prophet Haggai speaking on God's behalf says well it's funny isn't it how you've got time to build your own houses you live in paneled houses not just basic houses but but luxurious houses houses with paneled walls and fancy decorations on the walls it's funny how you've got time to focus on your own houses but my house lies in ruins uh, it was the right time it would appear for them to look after themselves. But not the right time for them to look after the house of the Lord. Now, I don't know if, if you, uh, what, what you make of that. But it seems to me that, that many of us have got time for ourselves. And many of us have got time to take care of our own things. And I... And, and the, the house of the Lord, if we could call it the church building, the house of the Lord, or even just the work of the Lord, is something that we don't really give a lot of time to. It's something that we neglect. And we are good at taking care of ourselves. And God can kind of look after himself. And we kind of neglect the things that maybe we shouldn't neglect and the things that we should give our focus to. The other thing which is picked up on in verses 5 and 6 is the poverty of the people. Haggai uses a very interesting statement. He says, put your heart on the road. Literally, that's how it would be translated. The NIV translates it, give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you've never had enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put clothes on, you're never warm. Your wages, you put them in a purse with holes on it. What is being pictured here is a poor harvest you've planted but you haven't harvested the food that you do harvest never seems to satisfy you there never seems to be enough of that whether they were suffering from disease or or whether the food was just 
not of a great quality. Somehow they were never satisfied with either the food or the grapes that they pressed and, and, and turned into wine. The clothes that they wore were light, didn't keep them warm. Their income didn't seem to match their outgoings. Their purses had holes. And Haggai is basically saying, well, uh, you're up against it. I realize that you're up against it. But don't you, don't you realize that the corrective hand of God is upon you because of your failure to take care of his house? Looking after yourselves, but not looking after the things of God. Don't you realize that you're up against it, that life is tough because the corrective hand of God is upon you? Verse 7, he tells them to go up to the hills and to bring wood for the Lord's house. To finish the Lord's house. Go up to the hills, the, the, the hills around Jerusalem probably. Solomon had actually sent to Lebanon and brought cedars to build the original temple. But here uh, the prophet Haggai is saying to the people of Jerusalem. You should go out into the forests around Jerusalem bring wood and finish and finish the temple. And, and the reason that God had brought uh, all of this judgment of, uh, upon them was because they had busied, busied themselves looking after themselves but had neglected the things of God. So that's the challenge that Haggai brings to them. So you live in panelled houses. God's house lies in ruins. You're looking after yourself. But, but frankly, God can just look after himself. You're not interested in rebuilding this temple, which, which is synonymous with God's glory. If the temple lies in ruins and the temple is the place where God's presence is revealed, then it, then it, it has implications for God's glory. And isn't it time, he says, that you went out and got the wood that was necessary to come and finish the temple? Well, here's the second thing that I want to look at, and that is... The response of uh, Zerubbabel and the people of Israel. So verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the Lord's messenger gave this message, uh, gave this message of the Lord's of the Lord to the to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, and they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. On the 24th day of the 6th month in the 2nd year of King Darius. So what they did was they obeyed. God spoke through the prophet and they did exactly what God asked them to do. They obeyed the word of the Lord. It took them 24 days to get back to work incidentally. But the point is that they did exactly what God asked them to do. And there's a challenge in that isn't it? Isn't there? Like these people, God spoke to these people and they did it. They acted upon what God said. And how often does God speak to us? Yet we don't obey. God tells us to make Him a priority.
But we never make him a priority. We continue to make ourselves the priority. Or our families the priority in our lives. And we don't give God the place that he should be given. God tells us that we should forgive people that wound us and hurt us. But we don't do it. We hold grudges. And fellowships are rent asunder with with, uh, disagreements. And with ongoing sort of bitterness between members. God speaks to us on a regular basis. But do we do it? God has spoken to you, I'm sure. Have you done what God wants you to do? In verses 13 to 15, the Lord promises then that he will strengthen these workers. And he does strengthen these workers. Uh, The thing that is promised is God's presence. See, See what it says there? I am with you. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord's people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that what has made the difference in the lives of God's people down through the centuries? And yes, they were up against it. Yes, the Samaritans were opposing them at every step, at every front. But God is promising that he will be with them. And and that has been the great thing that has marked the lives of God's people down through the generations. God's presence. Remember way back when Joseph was in prison, it says, and God was with Joseph, and he prospered. Remember Moses at the burning bush, and, and, he, and God says, I want you to go back and leave my people out of Egypt. And, and Moses says, well, I think you've got the wrong person. I can hardly even talk. I mean, how am I going to go back to Egypt and tell the rulers of Israel that I am their new leader? Will they believe me? And don't you know there's a price on my head? Because I killed an Egyptian with my bare hands. And what did God say to him? Is it Exodus 3, 16? I will be with you, Moses. That was the promise given. And what about Joshua? God tapped him on the shoulder and said, I want you to be the new leader of Israel. I want you to be Moses' successor. And Joshua feels his inadequacy. And what did God say to him? As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And this is the promise that is being given to these Israelites as they face the opposition of the Samaritans and give themselves to the rebuilding of God's house and the raising of God's glorious name. I'll be with you. Not only do they have the Lord's presence, but God promises that he will provide the power that is needed. And he begins to provide the power that is needed. Um, The Lord stirred up the leader's But not just the leaders. He stirred up the people. God comes to invigorate them. To inspire them. To enthuse them. And to empower them. And and where would any of us be in the work of the Lord. Without the Lord's empowering. Sometimes. You know I tell the students that I work with on a regular basis. We can't do it. We've got to a stage where we think we can do it. You know I was pastor of a big church in, in North America and the, the great temptation was to think, oh, we've got a great PA system, a great worship team. We've got all of the stuff in place. We can do this. No, we can't. can't even create an anxious thought in a person's mind. It's God alone that can do it. And if we ever get to the place where we feel that we can do it without the Lord's empowering and the Lord's enabling, we've made a terrible mistake. You know, one of the reasons that I fall flat on my spiritual face before lunchtime 
It's because I get up in the morning and trundle into the day and think, you know, I, I can do this. No, you can't do it, Robert. You need God's empowering to do it. And God promises and begins to empower his people. The second message then, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, is, is that the temple will be filled with glory. So let me read that to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of, the, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord. Well, um, let me just say a, a few things about that. Um, the people in, in chapter 1 verses, uh, in chapter 2 verses 1 to 5, they somehow are discouraged by the memory of the old temple. Some of the older folks, as they rebuild this temple, they, they become discouraged and disheartened because it only seems like a shadow of the temple that Solomon built. It's only just a ramshackle of a place in comparison to the glory of the old temple. And they're discouraged. Is, is this what we're building, really? Is this, is this all that we're coming up with? Um, and, and they're discouraged. Discouraged by how it used to be. Discouraged by how it used to be. I don't know if you find this in, in Christian work, but I, I have certainly found it that there are people who remember how it used to be. And, and they can sow seeds of discouragement in, in regards to how it is now. We can't live in the past. And, and there may have been great times in the past when amazing things happened in the past. But that was then and this is now. And we must live in the reality of now. And engage in the work of God now. Even though it's maybe only a shadow of some of the great things that happened in, in, in the past. But here's the thing that really struck me. God promises that the glory of this house that they are building will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, I want you just to think about that for a few minutes. The glory. It may have been a reference to the fact that one day 
a person called Herod would step onto the stage of world history and he would beautify this temple. He would build huge facade around it and uh, a huge big area in front of it, a courtyard, and he would beautify it to the extent that it would be more glorious than Solomon's temple. But you know what I think? It's interesting that the Ark of the Covenant was never taken back to the second temple. It was lost during Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Jerusalem. And there's never any record of the cloud that was synonymous with God's glory that descended on Solomon's temple ever descending again on the second temple. So how could God say that the glory of this house would be greater than the glory of the former house? You know what I think the prophet Haggai is saying? He's saying one day the glory of God in the person of his son will walk into this temple and it will be filled with the very glory of God as he's veiled in human flesh. The, the old temple of Solomon never experienced that. But the temple that these people are building. Will one day have God's son standing in its courts. The last thing or the second last thing is just this section which runs from verses 10 um, through to verses 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. And if a person carries consecrated meat in the, if a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation. In my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this. From this day on, consider how these things were, were uh, before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw uh, 50 measures, um, there was only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn until now? The vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. So it's kind of a strange passage, but uh, sacrifices were offered and part of the sacrifice was kept back um, for the priests. And the priest would carry it in the fold of his garment and it was holy food. And now Haggai is asking the question, well, if, if, um, if, if that robe carrying that holy food touches, say, another piece of food, will it be made clean by it? And the answer is no, 
There's no secondary transmission of holiness. And Israel needed to learn that even though they had done some helpful things and even though they belonged to God's holy people, they themselves were not right with him and their hearts were far from him. And, and they needed to repent and they needed to become holy as they repented and sought God for forgiveness and cleansing. And the other question which he asks is, well, is a human body, uh, does contact with a dead person render someone unclean? And of course, uh, if somebody touches a corpse or, and, and, and uh, that person then comes into contact with food, would that food become unclean? And the answer is yes, it would. Uh, it would no longer be holy. And so the whole thing seems to be pointed at the Israelites. You've been defiled. And you're unprepared to repent. And uh, you, you've been defiled in Babylon by the Babylonians. You've embraced their lifestyle and their sinful ways. And you need to repent. And you need to be made holy again in, in the Lord's sight. And then finally, in the final section... Uh, the Lord promises to bless them again. I, I just find that really interesting. They've been defiled. They weren't holy. But God in his grace promises to bless them again. And how often has that been true of us? We have sinned. Yet God in his grace has blessed us. And promises to bless us in the future. And that's what he does for these people. The final section. The word of the Lord uh, came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth and I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms and I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and I will make you like the signet ring, like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, there's a few things that we could say about that just as we close. And one is that God is promising that the dominion of the Gentiles will come to an end. Now that may have been a reference to the fact that Alexander the Great is coming and he'll devastate uh, Cyrus's great empire, the Median Persian Empire. But it's more likely to be pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. Because um, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is actually in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 make mention of Zerubbabel. And, and it seems that God is saying, Zerubbabel, you're going to become my signet ring in the sense that your descendants, your family, the people that will come from your line will become my signet ring. They will have my authority to sign and seal documents. And it seems to be pointing forward to the coming of Jesus when he will overcome all opposition. And he will sit on a throne and he will reign for all eternity. Well, Haggai, what is it about? It's about the rebuilding of the temple. It's largely about 
the stirring up of people who were concerned about themselves, who wanted to make sure that they were living comfortably, but didn't care about the fact that God's name and God's house and God's glory were largely in ruins. Certainly God's house was in ruins. And Haggai wants them to think, well, maybe we should think about God as much as ourselves. Maybe we shouldn't be so consumed with our own needs. Maybe we should start to think about advancing the work of God. Raising up the house of God. Because a broken temple was synonymous with a broken relationship. And uh, God wants that relationship, covenant relationship, restored. And he wants them to work again at uh, rebuilding the temple. And all of us are the same. I think it's one of the great challenges in the 21st century. All of us want to make sure that we drive nice cars and live in nice houses. And uh, I don't think many of us give as much thought to the work of God and the glory of God in the name of God. As much thought to that as we should. Many of us are making sure that we're looking after ourselves. But what about the advance of the kingdom of heaven? And uh, I leave that with you to ponder. That's Haggai, at least it's my sense of Haggai, and I hope it's been of some help to you tonight.